It's the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, we thought we ran out of top fives, but I think we had another one. We have at least this one. We have, I don't know how many more there are to do, but this one might be the last one. But who knows? Maybe someone will send us some good ideas for other top fives. There you go. Email us, therushcast at gmail.com. What top fives have we missed? Right. We might as well just crowdsource this podcast till the end, right? There we go. Crowdsourcing is always cool. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at The Rush Cast. I just gave you the email. Lex did the bass intro and outro. He's the best. And Jared, you know what you usually do to start things out? Tell a joke. Oh, that would be great. Tell us a joke. No, I'm not going to tell you a joke. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a joke. I don't have a joke. You do have an email, though. I do. And it's from Felix, and he's he lives in Spain. Hey, Felix. He says, hi, Jerry and Steve. I've been listening to your podcast for almost two years now. And so far, I don't think you've read an email from someone from Spain. So, hola. Como estas? Hola. <laughs> First of all, I want to do the right thing. So here's my Rush origin story. I was 20 and in college. One day I was in bed with a fever and my roommate gave me a tape to help me through that awful time. The cassette was a show of hands. And 34 years later, we're still friends and, of course, still Rush fans. I can never thank him enough. I've been thinking lately about a couple of things, and I would like to know what you both think about them. One is that when I hear you talking about the average number of times that your guests or yourselves have attended a live Rush show, that makes me so sorry because I never had the chance to see Rush live as they never came to Spain. So... Can anyone be a real Rush fan without having gone to one of their shows? Obviously, I think the answer is a big yes. And anyway, I'd like to know what you think. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, absolutely. What are you going to do? You live in Spain and they never came to Spain. Right. He's a real Rush fan. Of course he's a real Rush fan. Some people would disagree, but he's absolutely a real Rush fan. Absolutely. 100%, Felix, you're a Rush fan. And the other question is, considering that Rush is in a big part, a live band, a band that gained their following on the stage. And the huge number of times they have played, especially in the U.S. and Canada, don't you think that they could have visited the rest of the world more than they did? I mean, how many countries have they never visited? I remember the band's reactions to the shows in Brazil and the huge audience they had, even though they thought they didn't have many fans there. Now, the, I think the real reason why they didn't go to many countries is simply logistics. I was just going to say the word is logistics, period. The shows were huge and it was just difficult yeah. to travel. When we talked to Dan Catullo and he told us all the difficulties of Rush playing in Brazil, think about that times 10, <laughs> 20 different countries. Right. I mean, they all wouldn't have been as difficult as Brazil, obviously. Yeah. But each of them would have had their difficulties. Yeah. It's just a huge undertaking. And as Russia's stage shows grew, the amount of people they had with them, all of that, like you said, logistics, when it was just the three of them touring Europe back, you know, in the early seventies, they could play anywhere. Right. But when their show became huge, forget about it. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. And he says, anyway, I just wanted to let you know how fantastic this podcast is for us Rush fans. When I tell my friends and relatives that I listen to a podcast about a band and that the podcast has more than 150 episodes, they think I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree. I, I think we're crazy as well. Imagine if you were the one creating the podcast. How crazy <laughs> would you be then? <laughs> Thanks for the passion and the hard work. I really appreciate it. Right now, I have just listened to episode number 100, so it will take me some time to catch up with you. But when I get there, I hope you'll have read my email, and I will listen to you both sending me regards in Spanish. And he says, thank you very much. Brought to you by the letter F. <laughs> For Felix. <laughs> right. Now, I was going to say something in Spanish, but I'm not. I can't speak Spanish at all. No. I mean, let's be honest. Our English isn't even that good. 
The only Spanish I know, believe it or not, is from Sesame Street when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, I know Salida. You know, that's <laughs> and maybe a couple of lines from a Beck song here and there, right? Maybe, yeah. Guero, right? <laughs> Guero, right, yeah. So he has a PS at the end. He says, I have a completely amateur website where I write my humble reviews about albums I like. It's a lifetime project that obviously I will never complete, but it's my dream and my mission. Anyway, as you know, the point of the journey is not to arrive. So he has a website. It's www.felixgjc.com. And of course, he has a section on Rush, which is www.felixgjc.com slash rushpal.html. Nice. You're going to have to rewind the podcast to get all that. That's right. But you can do it. Yeah. And now I'm excited for him. A year from now, maybe around that time, <laughs> if he's listening to one a week, he'll hear this and be very happy. There you go. There you go. Thanks so much, Felix, for the email. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciated our first email from Spain. Hopefully not our last. That's right. So, Jer, as we mentioned, we've got another top five for you today, and our guest that's going to help us with the top five describes himself on his Instagram as imaginative, realist, dark artist. He's the man behind the incredible artwork on Kevin J. Anderson's final collaboration with Neil Peart, Clockwork Destiny, and also happens to be a huge Rush fan. Steve Otis, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> We like to start out by asking our guest, Steve, their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? Well, let's see. Way, way back in 1978. <laughs> but I, I think I was about 15, and uh, one of my buddies got a hold of Hemispheres. And um, just, um, you know, I was at his place, and he goes, you know, there's this, I got a record from this Canadian band. I was like, man, Canadian, you like, I was into British prog and all that kind of stuff, you know, Genesis and yes. So I go, yeah, Canadian band. Blah. So <laughs> pop that on the turntable and you're like, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pretty much uh, smitten from that day on, I'd say. Then it was really cool. They were Canadian. So so was I. So I was like, oh, something to identify with. <laughs> By this time, you were already interested in art, right? Yeah, I was pretty much, um, I, I pretty much grew up with a pencil in my hand and, and you know, crayons and whatever. Uh, from a very early age, I was always drawing something or making little comic strips or drawing Batmans or dinosaurs or <laughs> anything that was pretty much fantastic. Or, or already at that young age, I was an imaginative realist. <laughs> <laughs> and you were very much into uh, comics I had read, right? Yeah, I kind of grew up with, you know, the whole DC Marvel universe. Being uh, in French Canada, I was also um, into things like Asterix and Tintin, which is a little more like European comics. As I got older, I got into um, the uh, Warren magazines, which were published in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, called Eerie and Creepy, which were like horror anthology um, comics, and which featured a lot of amazing artists uh, in black and white. And that's where my, my whole love for the whole dark art and horror genre kind of popped in. I got it around 12 or 13. I get my monthly subscriptions and like, I just go crazy looking at all the, the art and they're going, wow, I just hope someday I can get to be to that level. <laughs> so a lot of practicing, I still am. <laughs> now, when you got these, Rush albums when you were young, what did you think of the artwork on the covers? Well, um, like most people of, well, I don't know if most people who my age back then, but the, the album cover always spoke to me a lot. Like I, I would like lay in my bed, like with the album sleeve and just pour over it while I listened to the album. So that was like for all the Rush albums and all the other bands I had. If, if, if the album cover wasn't cool for some odd reason, couldn't really get into it. <laughs> there were some exceptions, but usually speaking, you, you judge, you know, we say not to judge a book by its cover, but I'd go to record stores and I'd look at the artwork on the covers and you're like, oh yeah, like this has got to be good because the cover is so amazing. <laughs> That's why we don't say you can't judge an album by its cover because everybody does, right? Well, there you go. I mean, some, I mean, there's some 
pretty shabby album covers out there to contain some right. great music. But in Rush's case, I'd have to say that they pretty much hit it every time. There's a couple of clunkers, in my opinion, <laughs> but I mean, most of them are pretty cool. So you mentioned you're in French Canada, Steve. Yeah. Did Rush get up there on tour very often? Uh, Rush, uh, they, they mostly played Montreal. So I was fortunate enough to see the Moving Pictures mm -hmm. tour. So that's my claim to the, I saw a mythical Rush tour. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was supposed to see the Hemispheres tour, but I was 15 and my parents wouldn't let me drive up to Montreal with a buddy. Although I did have the $8 to buy the ticket $8 at the Montreal wow. Forum Concert Bowl, <laughs> which is like half of the forum. So finally in 1981, when I was like almost 18, like I got the permission to go see them March 27th, 81. I think the tickets were like 10 50 at the Montreal Forum and uh, with Max Webster opening. So that was, a, that was the first rush show. But it started coming to Quebec City uh, on the Signal Store. And the following year, and I saw like I saw every tour since then. Uh, two reasons: <laughs> I'm a fan, and second of all, from '84 to '97, I worked security at our local concert forum. So whenever there was a Rush concert, I you know I I beg my boss, can I be at the soundboard? <laughs> and I'll, I'll watch the soundboard. <laughs> Make sure no one steals the soundboard. <laughs> there you go. So you know I got to know Howard Ungerleider pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're like, oh, here's here's the guy again, you know. Like, then I, I try to be discreet and like not just gush all the time. But uh, it was kind of cool. It's kind of a little range I have with my boss. Is well, you know, for the other shows, you can put me in the garage backstage, you know. I don't mind, but Rush, I'd like to see the show. So you know, my excuse would, would to be be at the soundboard. <laughs> so your career, Steve, and Rush sort of intersected when you connected with Kevin J. Anderson. Can you tell us how that happened? Yeah, that was a that was a pretty interesting. Well, it's a pretty interesting story in the sense that I was aware of Kevin Anderson like after reading most of Neil's books and about this author friend he had and all that. And so I'd read Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives, and um, so I added him to my Facebook page. And you know, I was following him on Facebook, and he made a post shortly after Neil's death. And he said, um, he wrote something like, you know, I'm thinking of re-editing drum beats, you know, a book, I am I, a small novella uh, story that I wrote with Neil and, uh, you know, just made a little post. And so I just commented underneath, well, if you need a cover, you know, I'll do it. <laughs> so I, I just, I'm throwing something out there into the ocean, you know, you guys never heard of me and whatever. A couple of minutes later, I get a message like, are you serious about the cover? I said, sure, you know, I'll gladly do it. You know, like, I'll do it, like, I'll do it for free. You know, no problem there. So it was like, like, I might take you up on that. Like, so he said, I'll take a look at your stuff. And I guess he must have thought it was kind of cool. So he said, sure, like, do the covers and uh, the cover. And would you like to do some interior art? So some some black and white illustrations. So I said, sure, not a problem. So that's, that's how it all started, just by a little Facebook post. So, yeah, Facebook, you know. Sometimes things come out of that <laughs> that area. <laughs> so what is it like working with someone else's idea? Is it completely different from doing your own paintings? Well, yeah, in a sense. But I mean, Kevin like left me a lot of leeway. I mean, he just basically said, here's the story. It's like it's 29 or 30 pages. So read through it and send me a few sketches. So I sent him a few sketches, four or five sketches, and he right away chose, I think it was the second one, said, that's the one. Just a little, you know, basic pencil scribble. He said, I know like you're good with colors and all that, and I like the composition, so we'll we'll take that one. And uh, so it was as simple as that. He's a, he's kind of a dream to work with because he's not one of those art directors kind of guys who will be like, you know, you got to put this in it, got to put that, try to not put this. And a lot of people who will, how could I say art direct artists? They don't necessarily know what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> so as an artist, sometimes you'll go, well, yeah, this it's a good idea, but the composition won't work on like a small book cover or a small CD cover or whatever. Uh, but Kevin's like really positive about the input and all that. And everything we discussed, he was always like, sure, you're the, you're the artist, go ahead. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. <laughs> So when it came time to do Clockwork Destiny, Kevin reached out to you again, did he not? 
Yeah, that was a that was a surprise. Actually, his his publishing company kind of killed the surprise um, because we, I got an email from ECW Press saying we've talked to Kevin. He wants you to do Clockwork Destiny as a cover. Are you interested? And I said sure. Like yeah, no problem. And um, so I wrote back to him. And he goes like, "Shit, I was supposed to tell you like next week." <laughs> <laughs> so that was really, that was pretty cool. So uh, that was in summer of I think 2021. Uh, once again, did a few sketches, submitted the sketches. He approved them and took it from there. The cover in itself, I mean, it's, it's it's rather small on the book, but if you if you see like with the print that's been released, there's a couple of Easter eggs in the painting where you can see some little rush references. So. Uh, if people have a keen eye, they can, you know, analyze the, the print and try to find them out. <laughs> now I'm going to have to find the, the larger print of that to see what I can find. There you go. There's still some available directly from Kevin. Nice. <laughs> Made a limited run of 150. So did Rush's music at all inspire you to create that image? Uh, definitely. Uh, well, as I said, uh, you know, Clockwork Angels was, I, I think, one of their best albums, uh, you know, from all of them. Uh, so, you know, I put that on a few times while I was like trying to get in the mood and uh, went reread Clockwork Angels. Uh, I got an advanced copy of Clockwork Destiny, <laughs> so which I was not allowed to divulge any information. So I kind of read that and just, okay, so here's what the ship looks like. Uh, he was really like uh, adamant about having, you know, the snow dog on the cover and, and an airship and some kind of like northern lights. So that was, uh, that was all the art direction I got, like, you know. Snow dog, big ship, balloons, and northern lights, <laughs> and a lot of ice, <laughs> which was a challenge because I'm not necessarily a painter who uses a lot of cold colors, so I don't use a lot of blues and greens. Um, I'm a very warm color guy with all my art, so, and if you look at that painting, most of it is blue and green, so it was quite a challenge. And did you draw any inspiration from some of like the, the older science fiction paperback books? From like the maybe the 30s or 40s uh well yeah i was a big fan of um uh, of frank frazetta still am uh, so basically all the conan books uh, arthur uh, conan doyle all uh, edgar rice burroughs all those old authors i went through those isaac asimov uh, 2001 a space odyssey you name it i mean read all that like as a teenager and definitely got the creative juices flowing with those things yeah, I couldn't help but notice on your Facebook page, Steve, the amazing, I don't know whether it's a drawing or a painting of Getty Lee. Is Rush a frequent subject for you? Uh, interestingly enough, no. <laughs> uh, I did I did the Getty Lee painting as a, just as a fun little project because I was doing a series, I was doing an exhibition on music icons, and, you know, I had like a whole bunch of them and, I finally said, I got to do, I got to make one of the guys of Rush. And I figured, I mean, if you want to, you want to paint one guy, you want to paint Getty because he has such distinct traits. So he's, you know, it's, it's really easy to capture. And uh, interestingly enough, that painting was sold. It wasn't even dry yet. <laughs> it was on my, <laughs> on my easel. And I posted a picture and somebody pops out like, I want that piece of art. And like, okay, great. You know, give me a day. It'll dry up and I'll ship it out to you. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that you do uh, a lot of, rock artists do you listen to a lot of music while you're painting uh strangely enough no <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty much of the usual when i paint I'm, i don't really have any music or pretty much in silence sometimes maybe just a cbc radio which is just blabbing and talking so uh, <laughs> music for some odd reason being a musician uh, if i'm listening to something i'm concentrating also on the music and a little bit less on the art so I'm not saying I'd never do it, but sometimes. Well, we thought it would be fun today, Steve, to have you help us choose our top five favorite Rush album covers. I wanted to start out by asking you guys, how difficult a task was this for you? Jerry, what did you think? Well, like every top five list that we've done so far, this was really hard. It's always hard, right? There's just so many great album covers and maybe it's because we're fans and like you said steve when i was younger i would get the albums and just look at the albums while i was listening to them so there's a, a deep connection to some of these album covers but there are so many great album covers was this hard for you steve 
It was pretty difficult, you know. It might have like, I mean, I'm not counting the live albums, but I mean, with just the 20 studio albums, I'm going like, okay. And as an artist, like I have my favorites, and and some of them, as I said, to me, they're. I mean, I think you signed did a great job on every one of them, but some of them just didn't speak to me, and so those kind of got chucked out pretty quickly. But then to choose the top five, it was like, what do I put first? Yeah. <laughs> Really, it was really tough. Actually, I, had to, I actually had to print them out, you know, like, to remind me. <laughs> That's a sign of age there, guys. <laughs> so why don't we count from five up to one, and Steve, we'll start with you with your number five Rush album cover. What do you say? Okay, my number five right here is Roll the Bones. Oh, wow. Mm, yeah. So it's it's on the bottom of my list. To me, it was, well, it, it was an album that reconnected me with Rush because I kind of lost a bit of interest in the 80s. Not a lot, but the whole keyboard area and keyboard years uh, and then the designs for those those album covers didn't really speak to me. Roll of Bones, like there was like a skull. It was kind of dark. There was something a little bit very hypnosis about it. I don't know if you if you know that company that made album covers for Pink Floyd and Alan Parsons mm. project and all that, but it, it it really looked like something like the, when I saw it, I said, "Oh, this is cool." And I remember like back then, there was no vinyl anymore, so I had it on a little cassette, <laughs> and I was like, even on a small cassette, this yeah. speaks to me. So that's that's my number five. As soon as you said that, I was like, it's because it has a skull on it, right? That's the real reason. <laughs> All right, Jared, what's your number five? Well, I'm going to go with 2112. Oh, wow. It's so simple, but it tells you so much about what the album is about. And, you know, the, the star, and I guess on the inside is the, is the star man, but that star has become, you know, like they're one of their de facto kind of icons for the band. It's just mm -hmm. a, stayed with them since it came out. Yeah, the whole pentagram kind of thing that, that was to me is like, are these guys satanic? Or <laughs> and you look at the back of the album, like, no, they weren't kimonos. These guys are not devil worshippers. No, not at all. <laughs> That's a good choice, Jared. Good choice. What do you have, Steve? Well, for my number five, I decided to go with one of Hugh's minimalist covers. And this is the one that I find the most striking. It's counterparts. Huh. The nut and the bolt in gold on the blue background is just stunning and memorable. I pulled up a quote from Hugh Syme. This is from Louder. He did an article about his own album covers. And he said, what band in all of rock and roll would allow their art director to propose with a straight face, a diagram of a nut and a bolt for such a potentially vast word as counterparts. So vast a word, Neil and I could not stop thinking big, so we didn't. Huh. For weeks and weeks. What do you guys think of that one? That's pretty interesting, actually, because the, the nut and the bolt are a counterpart in, in themselves, in the simplest form. <laughs> wow. I, I'm so surprised by that, Steve. I don't know why. You don't like it's, that one? No, I do. I, it was, you know, it was on my original short list but it didn't make the cut. It's such a, again, it's such an, a, a simple, simple idea. I wonder, what do you guys think of the fact that it's an album cover for the CD age, as opposed to having such a big canvas for albums, the concepts could be a little bit larger. Maybe that one is a little bit less dense because of it's on CD. Well, I think they have a point in the sense that, you know, CD being about, you know, four or five inches by four or five inches. I mean, a lot of albums covers from the seventies, once they came out in the CDs, I mean, you lost a lot of the detail. So you're keeping things simple. It's a very straightforward design and it works. There was no point in making album art that contained all these incredible details and all this incredible art because it was so small. And even if you had it as a poster inside, it didn't fold out to be that big. So I think simple, better, less is more, you know. Yeah, and Hold Your Fire came out around the same time too, and that was another simple one, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that was on vinyl. So that actually it's interesting called Hold Your Fire. The interior cover to me is far superior to the out the outside <laughs> one. Yeah. 
I, t- I remember taking it out going, this should have been the cover. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what Hewitt initially intended, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he did. I think so. I think I remember reading that somewhere. All right, Steve, we're to your number four. What do you got for number four? Okay, number four for me is Hemispheres. Oh, good one. <laughs> Which, according to, I think, you, Syme, had said that it was a god-awful montage of, of just cut-out pictures. To me, it spoke to me because it looked like a Magritte painting. <laughs> yeah. And also, when I, when I saw it at, at a very young age, I was... I was still at that age where I figured, like, why is there a naked person on the cover? I mean, this is like I could not bring that home. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's kind of quirky. It's kind of like it's not, it's not the, it's, I mean, it's not Photoshop, but you know, the guy and the brain, like the floating brains and back. So that that it spoke to me a lot, and I mean, it, the music inside it was just like completely crazy. I mean, so it was, it was a pretty good package to me. Yeah. That was also on my list that I had to cross out like 10 minutes before we started recording. <laughs> All right, Jared, what's your number four? Let's hear it. Uh, my number four is signals. Ah, good one. Because again, it's just, I think I'm just going with the iconic album covers from rush. Again, it's a very simple one. And that red fire hydrant and the, and the Dalmatian, you see it all the time pops up. In reference to Rush, if you see a, a Dalmatian next to a fire hydrant, at least I'm thinking Rush. I don't know what, what the average person is thinking. But, you know, it's, it conveys, again, a lot about the concept of the album itself, where this Dalmatian is getting signals from other dogs in the neighborhood. I just think it's a, it's a very clever photo. Definitely is. <laughs> to me, it wasn't, it wasn't one of my favorites. <laughs> no? No, I remember when, uh, when, when when it came out. I mean, I bought it the day it came out. And back pre-internet days, uh, you had no idea, like, what this thing was going to come out. It was like, <laughs> you'd get, like, right. somebody would start talking. I hear there's a new album from Rush coming out. Oh, you know, they go to the record store. Here's the album. And, you know, we had just gone from moving pictures, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> and to me, this was, like, kind of bland. Hmm. And it reflected to me what was on the album guys searching for a new style because mm. to me signals is kind of like moving pictures we're trying to get out of moving pictures but we're still stuck in that style and we're breaking out a little bit so i feel a cover is very indicative of what's inside don't expect what you've already heard mm. and it was a hard one for me to 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 get into on tracks like the weapon and digital man it took a while to sink in because that dance beat just had didn't get to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. That 4-4 four, four bass drum that didn't work for me. Now, do you think that you didn't like the album cover as much because you didn't like the music as much? Do you think that had something to do with it? Uh, well, actually, when I got, when I saw the album, I went like, this is just kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I was expecting... I mean, I was still expecting, you know, the Hemispheres era rush and the, the permanent waves and all that. And so when I actually listened to the album, I mean, it started out with a bang. And then it kind of, to me, it petered out. And over time, I appreciated it a lot more. But back in 1982, I was like, you know, a prog head. And anything that was remotely reggae or techno or too synthy it was kind of a bit of a turnoff. But I mean... You know, I was only 18. <laughs> what did I know? <laughs> Steve, what do you have for number four? Well, coincidentally enough, my number four is also Signals. Oh, I thought you were going to say Hemispheres. <laughs> Again, just like you said, Jer, uh, another simple image, but the colors to me just pop on this. The red hydrant, the green grass, the black and white Dalmatian against that light tan background. And then you got the font which is yeah kind of brushed right so 80s yeah it's very (laughs) 80s but this is 1981 steve right it was shouldn't it it be 80s (laughs) it should it should be it's just like back then it was like you know i wanted it to to still be the prog 70s (laughs) i was not ready for the new wave rush i'm gonna read the phrase that hugh wrote he had it as his number five favorite album cover Hmm. because he listed his top 11 Oh, top 11. 
Yeah, he simply said, the fire hydrant and the fire dog. This deceptively simple end result of an otherwise everyday occurrence in the dog world was the culmination of three months of conceptual cul-de-sacs. I like how graphically the primary and secondary colors worked while depicting the theme with some still unsettling and unexpected whimsy. A moment from Twin Peaks. Hmm. Wish I had said that. <laughs> it's interesting to, to, to hear that the guy who designed it, what his thoughts are on these things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, uh, Steve, we're to your number three. What you got for us? We're down to my number three. Okay. So number three, I have moving pictures. <laughs> okay. Nice. I just love the whole wordplay, the whole composition, the triple arches, all the, the people moving pictures, you know, the whole kind of like set up. It, there was something, the black background with the red, the red rush, uh, that, that just grabbed me right off the bat. I mean, it was like, it was the album to, to me as, as I think it's Getty who says it in their documentaries, like 1981 was the year of rush. I mean, it was like, you know, what do you do? We're going to see rush. It's that was the event and that album, the whole design of it. A bit reminiscent of 2112 for the red and black, which I thought was always a cool color combination. And I like the whole photo composition of it. And it, it just it just works. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Jer, what's your number three? Well, my number three is one that I know reflects the, the turmoil of the recording process. And that's Grace Under Pressure. Great mm -hmm. one. Because there's a lot of weird stuff on this album cover. First of all, it's the, the, the album, all the colors, I don't even know how to describe it. Steve, how would you describe the, the, the colors that are used on Grace Under Pressure? To me, Grace Under Pressure is icy cold blue. There you go. And it reflects definitely the music inside. Yeah. That, that was the one thing to me when I first uh, saw the album, once again, pre-internet. So this comes out and I'm going... Okay, so there's kind of a an android head, and there's this, right. an eye in the background, and it's kind of like abstract. I thought it was cool because it was a, a real painting, I, you know. And then, and I remember like getting a feeling of coldness from it, and I remember like listening to the album like the first time, first run through, going, it's very sterile. And as a musician, I was going, yeah, I don't know, like these, like there's a lot of electronic drums. Uh, the guitar solo have changed into textural solos. So we're very far from Limelight and the La Villa Strangiato. So to me, it was like, I'm not sure I'm, I'm liking this a lot. And so it kind of, you know, the, the cover to me was also the same thing. Not sure I like this a lot for Rush, <laughs> you know? I love this, this Android figure on the left. And what I love about it is that you can't see its face. Yes, that, and that eye in the background, we're not sure what it is. <laughs> right. Could be there's, a bird. <laughs> there's also like a jawbone and some teeth yeah. hanging out in there. Yeah. And then again, there's another, you know, the grace under pressure mathematical symbol, which yes. for the longest time, I'm like, why is it P over G? I don't know why it never, it didn't click for me for like 10 years. I'm like, oh, it's grace, yeah, grace under pressure. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and it splits the painting. Right where the two halves, the, term, the turmoil on top and the, the slightly less turmoil on the bottom. And then the painting and then the water on the bottom is also spilling outside of, of you know, the image itself, sort of like a Pink Floyd album. Actually, once again, what I would have liked was, was that image of the egg in the vice. And to me, that would have been a perfect album cover for that album. But once again, I think it was inside or in the... It was on the back because it's the, the portrait of Yosef Karsh is back on that. What Hugh Syme wrote, he has this as his number two favorite album cover. And he says, by now we had really hit our stride as a band and art director. I was really enjoying the process of how Neil and I could discuss and jam on ideas, sometimes with immediate yields and sometimes only finding the first of many. My initial inclination was to venture into an ultra-minimal almost ECM jazz label feel. And in that cover's frame depict a field of heavy tone over a calmer hue. So we would have pressure weighing down grace, sky and water. That's when it occurred to me that this also could be a fraction 
with P literally over G. Then we found ourselves heading into more metaphorical, surreal direction for the final themes of the painting. And I also enjoyed that process, painting, something we only ventured into a few times. Hence, I still have the working sketch I did that evening on a paper napkin. That's pretty cool. Pretty I, cool. Yeah. I think that's one of their last albums to feature like an actual painting. Really is spectacular. I wonder, I wonder who has the original of that. <laughs> oh yeah, I wonder. I wonder who has it. I don't yeah, know. Well, I always wonder a lot about like a lot of album art. Like, does do the artists still own the original art, or like has it been sold to a fan or a collector? Or? If I'm not mistaken, Neil had it in his office. The the painting itself, which is evidently is is very large. Okay. He had it in his office oh. since the album came out, so I'm oh, well. not sure where it is now. There you go. <laughs> so my number three is also moving pictures. Hmm. Jerry, we've talked about the triple meaning of this cover, which is amazing. The red on black, like you said, Steve, is just striking. It pops out. <laughs> and the photograph is iconic. The legislative building in Toronto, mm-hmm. the red jumpsuits jump out to me too. And it's just iconic. It's incredible. To me, it has the same quality as a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah. The same composition, like that kind of something was people are posing for something and you can tell it's, it's, it's set up, it's staged. It doesn't look natural, even though they want it to look natural. <laughs> so that's the whole, the whole key to this. So it has that kind of like Americana feel or maybe Canadiana if you want, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it just screams Norman Rockwell to me. So for some odd reason. Hugh Syme chose this as his number one. Wow. Yeah. And he says, despite budgetary limitations for that time and the challenges this concept posed, it was a pretty ambitious piece to undertake from the cover to the inner sleeve. I'm pleased that the outcome was so close to my initial vision. And like some songs, this one came to me in an instant. Neil's titles are like that. So he heard moving pictures and immediately thought, I'm going to have dudes moving pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Or you could have Bavarian waitresses moving pictures too. (laughs) There you go. There you go. All right. we're, We're to number two. Steve, what do you got for number two? Okay. This was a tough one because I was... It was almost my number one, but at the last minute, I kind of changed. So uh, my number two is Permanent Waves. Nice. To me, it had this whole, I mean, I'm a sci-fi guy. I mean, definitely. So this whole kind of like post-apocalyptic image of a hurricane, there's turmoil, it's everything's topsy-turvy, and you have this like supermodel, like, you know, just walking by as if, yeah. Not a problem here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and uh, to me, it, it it was it was something fresh, something new. And although I was saying I wasn't I wasn't into the whole r- the '80s rush. To me, Permanent Waves announced when I first saw the cover, it was I was thinking like B-52s. I mean, the police. Mm. And so, you know, kind of weary of what am I going to hear inside. <laughs> Right. But, you know, I was pleasantly surprised <laughs> six times. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great choice. Great choice. Jer, what do you have for number two? Well, this was a, a tough one for me, but I decided to go with a farewell to Kings. Wow. Okay. Good one. For a lot of reasons, it is a very strange album cover, if you ask me. Right. There's the dead looking marionette on a throne. There's the bombed out building. There's a smokestack in the background. It's such a desolate image that somehow conjures up what the title song is all about. I just love it that the ability to to take a theme from the written word and put it into some kind of art. So I love this album cover. I agree. I love it too. It's very similar to Permanent Waves too, just with all the different images on one canvas, so to yeah. speak. Now, strangely, Hugh Syme did not put either Permanent Waves or A Farewell to Kings in his top 11. Oh, that's well, odd. How about that? Yeah, that's really strange. There's no accounting for taste. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand if you put Caress of Steel, that's for sure. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, my number two is also permanent waves. Huh. Wow. You guys are on the same wavelength. Pretty much in sync there. We are in <laughs> sync. Yeah. This is one I think you'd be thrilled to have hanging on your wall. At least I would be. The model is stunning. The picture of the Galveston seawall from 1961 is just iconic. And I think this fits the music too, you know? I mean, I see this and I hear Jacob's Ladder. There you go. There's so much going on here. And, you know, just the fact that the album's so great to me makes the album cover even greater. And it's in black and white, right? Which is an, an odd choice for something that's supposed to grab your attention on a rack, right? Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize that it's written permanent waves across the rush. <laughs> right. I'd be looking right across it. I'd be concentrating on the, on, on the picture and then, Oh yeah, the title's here. <laughs> didn't pop out at first. But this is a good example of an album cover that loses, for me, loses some of the references in it when you shrink it down, right? Because there are really cool things in the background that you just can't see if it's on a cassette or a CD yeah. cover. You know, I take it back, Jar. Hugh did pick A Farewell to Kings in his top 11. It is number 11. It's number 11. There you go. He didn't uh, describe the reason. He just kind of threw it in. He was supposed to do a top. <laughs> he was supposed to do a top ten, and then he threw in "Farewell to Kings" for eleven. Right. From what I read about you, Simon, I think he, he he had a lot of opinions about what what was done with you know collages or montages in the nineteen seventies. And just because back then we didn't have computers to like to cut and paste things, so it was actually literally like cut out images and superimpose things. So technically I think you had a lot of problem with those albums going, yeah, you know, it could have been better, <laughs> you know? Right. We, f we forget that the term cut and paste comes from the fact that people used to literally cut and then paste things together. I'm old enough to have done that. I've, I've worked <laughs> as a graphic artist and I've cut and paste texts. So yeah. I'll tell you, that's a challenge. <laughs> you don't know if you, you guys know what letter set is, but. That was a hell of a challenge to write out a whole word with this little thing that just kind of like, you know, put on a page and just scrimped on it till it transferred. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that's always the old days. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, what is your number one? Okay, my number one is A Farewell to Kings. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because basically because it's, it's, it's one, once again, the whole post-apocalyptic thing that spoke to me and that puppet just looked so damn weird <laughs> <laughs> right and like you said you got the smokestack and back it reminded me well i don't know i don't know if it reminded me because i bought it i think i bought farewell to kings like beginning of the 80s it reminded me of super tramps crisis what crisis which was kind of similar of a guy sitting in a lawn chair in the middle of some kind of like a junkyard or something and i remember when i saw it, I said, Seems I've seen this before, and then I kind of made a correlation. But actually, uh, once again, it's it's an interesting cover because Rush were still in that kind of medieval kind of proggy trip, and the cover, apart from the puppet kind of guy, looks very industrial and very like don't dirty and stuff. So you're not expecting once again the kind of music. You're certainly not expecting Xanadu inside of that. Right. Uh, or the intro to Farewell to Kings or Madrigal. I mean, it's, geez. I mean, Cygnus X1, okay. <laughs> That's kind of like <laughs> a bit of a, you know, very, a lot of turmoil in it. But a lot of the, the music is very bucolic and very pastoral and very beautiful. And the cover is just kind of, it's completely the opposite. And this mannequin, if you want to call it that, this puppet kind of looks like a court jester to me. Yeah. I mean, you want to say, fuck you, puppet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that was one that almost made it into my top five. So that gives away that it's not my number one. I think I know what your number one is, though, Jer, since you haven't mentioned it yet. No, of course. It's the cover of my favorite Rush album, Moving Pictures. So the thing with I love about Moving Pictures, and I, you see this a lot with other album covers, too, where people love to recreate album covers on their own. Do you know what I mean? Like they'll hold up the album cover in the place where the photo was taken and the rest of it just mm -hmm. kind of fills in behind them. And that's just how iconic moving pictures is to rush fans. 
it is like a play. People go to the legislative building because it's on the album cover. And people just love the three arches, even though, the, you know, obviously whoever built the building didn't intend it to have just three arches. But it's just, it's just represents Rush. You know what I mean? It just does. I think it's a great choice. But the question I have is, could you recreate any of the other album covers? Like if I, do I want to shave my head and uh, recreate <laughs> this? Uh, Grace Under Pressure? I'm already halfway there. <laughs> right. I meant recreate it in the real world, like go to, like, I remember there was the, there was, oh, I don't remember what site it was, but there was this photographer who went around trying to find out where classic album covers, where the photo was taken. He did, um, mm -hmm. Simon and Garfunkel album. He also did the free will and Bob Dylan tried to find that street or whatever. Who's next. I don't know if he did. Who's next. I think who's next where they were peeing on the obelisk from 20 yeah. from 2001. Right. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> I think the first, the first black Sabbath album, the, the, the that house still exists. So I've seen pictures of that. Really? So that's a real place. You know, there's some people actually will, you know, I mean, if I definitely go to Toronto one day, I'm going to be a geek enough to go in front of that building and get my right, picture. Of course. <laughs> you know, of course you will. Maybe not in a red jumpsuit, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> now that'd be the cool way to do it in a red jumpsuit. Right. Yeah, there you go. It always, red jumpsuit always reminded me of the jumpsuits that Devo used to wear. Theirs were like the nuclear kind of outfits yeah, you would wear if you were going to. <laughs> right, the flower pot heads. <laughs> so, Steve, what is your number one? Care to guess what it is? Hmm. Got to guess what it is. Sure. What, what don't you have on there? Hemispheres. No. Oh. It is also Grace Under Pressure. I'm surprised. Oh. First of all, I'm surprised, Steve, you didn't pick Grace Under Pressure. I don't know. <laughs> like I said, it's, it, it, it was not their best period to me. <laughs> so it's, a, it's one of those weird albums covers that even today, I, I kind of look at it going, yeah, I, I get it now. Uh, well, I get it now. There's there's a couple of songs. The Enemy Within, I still don't get. <laughs> but for the rest, right. you know, it's it, it was 1983. So there you go. There's synth drums, right. there's synths, and Alex just stopped playing real solos. For to me, it was a bit of a deception, but I grew to enjoy it. And, you know. Well, for me, this is just far and away Hugh's best cover. Like we were talking about, the colors meld together so well, fits the music perfectly. And to me, it should be hanging in an art museum. That's how beautiful this is. Well, as a painting, it works. Uh, if, you, if you just show me a painting, you say, here's a painting. We're not telling you what it is. It's just a painting. It just works 100%. Right. If I went to an art museum and saw that hanging on the wall, I would not be surprised. Nope, not at all. Not at all. So, Steve, have you done any album covers in your career? I've done a couple of album covers for underground metal bands. <laughs> That's about as a, as far as it goes. Or some some you know people that I knew who had bands in the area. So uh, you know heavy metal stuff. You know because it's associated a lot with you know with the type of art I do, the whole dark mm -hmm. art thing. So that's uh, that's what I've done. And no really known bands though so uh i'm not the next you Simon. that's that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> now if our listeners want to see more of your work where can they do that my website steve otis artist is uh is available as well as my facebook steve otis artist page where i'm getting close to twenty three thousand followers on that so i guess somebody must like the stuff <laughs> And do you do commission work if our listeners would be interested in something like that? Yeah, sure. My, I do commission work. Uh, right now I got a couple of things that I'm working on presently. So it's a, it's a reasonable wait. You don't have to wait an, a whole year if you want some original art. But, uh, you know, I've sold, I've been selling pieces a little, pretty much all over the globe in the last years. I've, I've sold paintings in Malaysia, Germany. Italy, you name it. Internet's great for that. That's that's things we didn't have in the when I started out as an artist in the eighties. Like it was all word of mouth, or you had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew someone else. 
uh, nowadays with the internet, well, I mean, it's just exploding. So you'll, you know, pop a piece of art on your site and next thing you know, you're selling it to a guy somewhere halfway across the world. So that's kind of cool in itself. You know, shipping is always a bit of a nightmare, but <laughs> <laughs> you always wonder, is the thing going to get there in one piece? But I take great care of my shipping and my packing. So. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Steve, to help us choose our top five Rush album covers. We really appreciate it and have a great day. Well, thanks. That was a, a pretty fun exercise, harder than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again. So, Jer, what a great idea you had having Steve on to talk about our top five album covers. He was the perfect guest for that. Well, Steve, I have to say it wasn't my idea entirely. A listener named Wayne added us in an Instagram post with a suggestion that we talk to Steve. And I'm glad I took his suggestion. Steve was very funny and entertaining. And he's a huge Rush fan. And he's a huge Rush fan. If he wasn't, we wouldn't have had him on. And I'm also surprised at how little overlap we had with these album covers. I think we had a little bit of overlap, but not. I just assumed we were going to have all, all of them would be the same. That's what I was thinking going into it. Really? Yeah. Maybe that's just very um, self-centered of me to think that everyone would like what I like. <laughs> so do you want to hear Hugh Symes top 11? Yeah, sure. In its entirety. Again, why is it 11? Because he threw in a farewell to Kings at the end after he did his top 10 and said, it just said, Oh, and I always liked the farewell to Kings too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. Let's hear it. Uh, so number 10 is clockwork angels. Oh yeah. Number nine is vapor trails. Number eight is test for echo. Number seven is counterparts. Number six is roll the bones. Number five is signals. Number four is hold your fire. Mm. Number three is power windows. One that we didn't mention, which we probably should have. I know. Well, when Steve mentioned paintings, that's the other one I thought of. I think that's a painting as well. Yes, it is. Number two is grace under pressure. And number one, like you is moving pictures. Hmm. It's interesting to hear his own thoughts on his own work. It was also interesting to talk to him when we did about all these album covers. Yeah. I just had to go with Grace Under Pressure. I thought, which one do I want hanging up on my wall? That's the one. Right. Right. I was trying to go for a little more iconic ones that, to me, you know, just screamed the average Rush fan. Rush. That makes sense. Makes sense. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Steve Otis. Tell us your top five Rush album covers. TheRushCast at gmail.com. Flex did the bass intro and outro. He's the best. And Jerry's got a great quote to wrap us up. Yes, it's from Between the Wheels. Ah, Grace Under Pressure. Grace Under Pressure. You know how that rabbit feels going under your speeding wheels. Bright images flashing by like windshields towards a fly. Frozen in that fatal climb, but the wheels of time just pass you by. They keep passing me by. I know. Thanks, Jer. All right, see you later. <laughs>